This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com future. We've probably all been told to watch our language at some point. I remember this one time when I was like eight and my mom scolded me for yelling Jesus. But I thought Jesus was just the plural of G's, which is a totally acceptable thing to say. <laughs> I wonder if today parents could scold their kids for saying things like LMFAO or using the middle finger emoji. I mean, they're technically not bad words, but they managed to communicate the same thing as God it. Because language is about more than the dictionary definition of a word. And that's what we'll be talking about in today's episode of Futuropolis, the future of language. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. People have long wondered about and tried to create a universal language. Back in 1911, popular science had a grand old time imagining such a thing. Of our thousand languages, great and small, dead and living, natural and artificial, from Edenese to Esperanto, which is the world speech of the future? Why, English, of course, America replies with one mighty voice, in which rings the indomitable optimism of the nation. They weren't terribly far off. Lots of people speak English. But it's not exactly universal. To get universal, you might need something like an image of a smiley face or a pizza slice, a.k.a. an emoji. To find out how these little images are changing our language, we talked with Fred Benenson. He wrote the book on emoji. Literally. It's called How to Speak Emoji, and it comes out in the UK on September 24th. He's also the guy who translated Moby Dick to create Emoji Dick. And he thinks these icons might revolutionize more than just teenagers' text messages. Ever since everyone kind of switched to text message to communicate, um, you're, you're kind of missing some of the nuance of the tone of people's voices, the expression on their face, those types of things. And so, you know, you could see emoji as a reaction to that. Though some people say emoji is ruining language. I mean, come on. There's a smiling pile of poop. Doesn't that tell you something about the integrity of it? I don't know. Even back in 1906, popular science discussed how languages are really about people and the messages they're trying to communicate. Strictly speaking, says Professor Lounsbury, than whom there is no higher authority in America on the history of English. There is no such thing as a language becoming corrupt. It is an instrument which will be just what those who use it choose to make it. And Fred says emoji have other benefits, too. I heard somebody explain it from a, like, neurological point of view, that when you see a smiling face, even if it's a cartoon, it's actually triggering the same parts of your brain that are activated when you see a normal person smile in real life. And so that caricature that you see an emoji is actually triggering real emotions in the same way that the physical manifestation of that person would would be doing. So will emoji become the universal language? Sure, there are cultural differences embedded in those little Unicode images, but a pizza slice is a pizza slice, right? Fred is skeptical. You know, no one no one decides about a new language. <laughs> you know, it all it all just depends on on people's habits and usages and, and that kind of thing. Emoji may not achieve world domination, but they are changing what we say and how we say it. 
And other kinds of technology are doing the same thing. Take translation, for example. We've all used Google Translate to figure out what's in that Italian dish on the menu we can't figure out, or what the title of that foreign movie actually means. And who hasn't gotten an almost nonsensical phrase as the translation? Language is more than just words strung together. There's a lot of nuance. That's where artificial intelligence comes in. Projects like IBM's Watson are getting better at being able to turn written or spoken word in one language into a coherent message in another. And that could totally change the way we travel abroad or conduct international business deals. Jerome Pacenti is vice president for core technology at IBM Watson, where he's working on teaching Watson about language. You could start removing language barriers so that, you know, uh, a Chinese can speak to a to a Thai person, you know, without having to learn the language and do basically translate in the middle for you. Uh, but also, you know, change the modality. You know, you can, right now, you know, you can call someone, but when you leave a voicemail, they have to kind of listen to it. Um, and, you know, if you have to, if you type something, they have to read it, right? But I think the computer will allow it to change these modalities. You know, you'll be able to um, basically Call someone, leave a message, and the other person will be able to read it, right? So we won't ever need to learn another language again, right? Well, wrong. Jerome, for example, speaks four. It's like saying, you know, you have calculators to do uh, calculator, but today you still teach kids to do their multiplication addition. I mean, you need a certain level of competency. I think, you know, the computer is a, com- is a complement, you know. It enables you to do things you couldn't do before for the people who are not trying to do it. It makes a lot of, enables you to do it faster, uh, better, um, and it's a partnership. When it comes down to it, though, people of the future are still going to want to talk to other people. And listen to podcasts. Languages connect us, and will continue to in the future. But they're going to look very different from today's. Luckily, we have an expert linguist ready to take us down that road. John McCorder is a linguist and professor at Columbia University. He studies languages, past, present, and future. We'll pick his brain on the topic next, but first, a quick interlude from our sponsor. This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Muntree. Could you imagine using Uber and having to pay with physical money? You might as well have, like a carrier pigeon or something. Braintree has made the payment experience in these apps seamless and magical. And now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. And Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment. Wait, wait, wait. Mobile cart abandonment? Is that like the grocery carts that you see chained to all sorts of posts and signs all over the city? I'm pretty sure it's when people start to buy something online but then don't actually end up buying it because it's too difficult. Oh, hence abandoning the purchase Yeah, and the mobile cart, even though it's not a real cart, just a little icon. Yeah, so they solved that problem by offering a best-in-class service mobile checkout experience. Nice. You can check it out for yourself. They give you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. 
To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com future. And now back to our regularly scheduled chat with linguist John McHorter. My name is John McWhorter. I teach linguistics and philosophy and American studies and music history at Columbia University. I write columns for Time and The Daily Beast. And so what do you think um, is sort of, how do languages change over time, like in a broad sense? The most important thing to realize about how language changes, and this is something that I'm stressing in the book I'm writing right now because this is extremely counterintuitive, is that language does not only change because the culture changes or because people come together. So it's not only that there's a new invention and so you have to call it something. It's not only that somebody invades or you meet some people and so people start exchanging. Language changes all the time just like in the game of operator. And so if some people were unfortunately condemned to live in a cave for 2,000 years, and when you sent them in, you recorded their language. When they came out 2,000 years later, they'd be speaking a different language. Nobody would ever have known that the language was becoming a different one, but just ooch by ooch, inch by inch, sounds change, interpretations change. That's what language is like. So the cultural part, that somebody invents a bassoon, that's just on top of that, that the Huns come and they've got a name for yak's blood or something. That's just on top of the fact that even if nothing happened to people at all, the language is always, I like to say morphing, not evolving, because that makes it sound like it's going somewhere and as if it's getting better. But it's not devolving either. It's just morphing. What, what kind of languages are the ones that you think are going to be lost? Well, there are six or 7,000 languages in the world. And according to some estimates, there are only going to be about six or 700 languages left after about 100 years. And so especially the smaller languages, and by small I mean the ones that aren't spoken by that many people, often in isolated places, they tend to get eaten up by the bigger languages, especially with globalization and modern communications and social media. And so there are a great many languages that, frankly, are just either gone or hopeless at this point. And then there are ones that are just teetering. And unfortunately, that is most of the world's linguistic diversity. And so to the extent that there's a crisis, it's not what's going to happen to German because people are saying mouse pet. It's that there are whole languages that often are much more complicated than any languages that we know that are no longer going to be spoken by children and therefore are dead. What do you think that landscape's going to look like? Well, we're going to have about 500 languages. So not five, but 500 languages. Korean and Finnish you know, are, are, are going to be fine. But we're going to have about 500. And command of English is going to be increasingly required of anybody who wants to live a life of any kind of scope. That doesn't mean that they're going to speak it to their children. That doesn't mean they're going to speak it casually. But they're going to have it as a second language. That language will not be Chinese. I think a lot of us have a notion that that might happen because it looks like the Chinese might be running the world. And I would, my bet is on them doing that in terms of money. But in terms of everybody speaking Chinese, highly unlikely because English called it. 
essentially. English already got in when the internet happened. English already got in when modern media happened. English is already there. It doesn't hurt that Chinese is harder to learn in many ways, both in writing and in speech, than English. But if Chinese had gotten there first, there'd be some sort of adjustment that had been made, and we'd all be speaking Chinese. But now, English already took it. And so the Chinese will be running the world, but in English. Do you think we'll get to a point where English will be sort of a universal language and that everyone will be able to speak that? I think we're getting to that point, definitely. Will everybody in the world speak English? Probably not, because there will always be certain inequalities that mean that some people won't have access to, among other things, a command of English. But it will become more and more common. And so the closest thing that the world will have to a universal language will not be something like an artificial language like Esperanto, which is delightful, but unfortunately English had already called it when that was invented. And there are going to be many fewer others that people are bi or trilingual in, but those will, those will survive. And what is the role that technology plays in sort of the spread of language? Technology spreads language in that it puts an image in our heads, or an image if you want to call it that, in our ears of a language in a way that was impossible just a short time ago to the extent that we can watch so much and we can hear so much. Now, to the extent that we can write to one another instantly on devices, of course, that means that a simplified kind of language is probably going to arise because even with those devices, there are a lot of things that you're tempted to leave out as you're writing with your thumbs and your fingers. So the telegraphic nature of texting is not surprising. But then also it gets into which language tends to infiltrate texting all around the world. English seems to be doing that too in terms of words and devices and things like LOL or the equivalent. If we're, if we're looking at these sort of um, text versions of language, it seems like there's also the opportunity for software and translation to come in and take the place of maybe learning another language? Increasingly, we'll be using instant translation to handle other languages instead of pretending to learn them. Languages are really hard, and this technology is fantastic. However, some people have ventured an idea that because of that technology, English isn't going to maintain its place, that people are just going to use these devices to communicate from whatever languages they had before. That, to me, is a cool notion. I can imagine somebody making a great movie depicting that. But I think that that idea misses the fact that speaking, to an extent, is an intimate act. When people are actually having relationships. They want to communicate more spontaneously than I may lack imagination, but than any machine translation is ever going to be capable of. I was just in Japan. My Japanese used to be infinitesimal. Now it's gone. And those Japanese, how dare they not speak English? Most of them don't really speak English. And I found myself linguistically handicapped. I enjoyed that, and so I went with it, but I didn't need to be because I could have used electronics to both read things and even to hold things up and say things to people. That's new. However, that wouldn't have worked if I wanted to really function in Tokyo for longer than 10 seconds and actually have real conversations. After a while, I would have wanted to say something. I mean, maybe translation could get that good, but I'm not quite seeing it. And so, for example, 
just do it. What does just mean? Or just try it on. In whatever language you know, render the just. Imagine how subtle these sorts of things happen. Or if somebody says something, I'm not sure how much profanity I can use, but if somebody says something like, um, I'm going to fire his ass. Well, it doesn't mean that you're going to dismiss the person's buttocks. It means that you're going to dismiss him. Why are you referring to him via his gluteus maximus? And would any machine necessarily catch that? And given that that sort of thing is sprinkled throughout any language and all languages have it, it only gets so good. So I think still we're going to need to really talk to each other. And so machines are going to take us a long way, but we're still going to need something that we can really jawbone in. Yeah, it seems like maybe the, the technology will get you from zero to one, that like very rudimentary part of the language, right. if you have no background. Or maybe but. two, but uh, yeah. And, and watch, in 100 years, maybe I'm going to sound like some you know clueless person, but I don't think so. Language is very rich and subtle. So what are you most excited about in in language down the road, what it's going to look like that's different from now? To tell you the truth, what I think is really a lot of fun is emojis, and not for the reason that a lot of people are talking about them now. It's not that the cute little faces are going to substitute for language itself, but those cute little faces contribute to texting or chatting the human face of language, which is as important as the fact that you put ed on the end of a verb to turn it into the past. And linguists are understanding this more and more, that the feelings, the fact that some things you say go against expectation, some things you say you want to emphasize the person to pay attention to, some things you say you want to emphasize more than other things, that often you just keep chat going because it would be wrong not to chat, and so you end up having complete filler. All of that is what language is to an extent largely about. The fact that we laugh so much when we talk, when nothing is particularly funny. All of that is very fundamental to how language works. Emojis are doing that. And so all of these faces, and gradually they're going to be ways of indicating sarcasm and irony, they make texting into real language. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like texting is the quickest, but driest, most heartless way to communicate. <laughs> exactly. So, and it's ever less so because of these these eggplants and things. It's interesting to think that they do add that much because they are so simplified. Once I was tech, I was chatting with somebody and they revealed that they had had a romantic encounter that one might consider to fall outside the bounds of conventional ethics. And so I wrote... Do you mean that you and Jim dot, 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 and the person wrote back an emoji with a little smile? And that was it. That was actually one of the first emojis I remember seeing. And I thought that emoji said how she felt about that entire thing better than anything she could have written or said. So I think that the emojis are going to get better and better. And I, I say this, I don't use them. I don't imagine I'm going to start, but that's partly because I'm almost 50, partly because I mail, and partly because I love good old-fashioned print because I, I'm fascinated by change because it makes me vaguely uncomfortable. But I know that I'm behind in that. I think emojis are going to just explode. So they obviously improve upon the text message. Do you think emojis will ever do a better job of communicating than an actual real-life conversation? Um, I don't think so because real live conversation conveys so much more than we tend to think because we tend to be focused on just 
the words. And so just, for example, I remember I asked somebody who, a very expressive person, so do you still play the viola? And he said, hmm. And just that there conveyed a little and in a way where you could tell he didn't really want to talk about it much more. But that was very articulate in its way. Or, for example, this new expression that people are using, I literally can't even, that's so good. I was telling my students about six months ago, I wish I could say that without it looking fake. I literally can't even, just the connotations of the literally not saying anything after the even, that is beautiful use of language. And people listen to that and they think, why don't these people speak properly? But I can't think of a better way of rendering what people seem to be feeling when they say I literally can't even than that. It's just, it's delicious. And so to listen to that and think it's I and literally and cannot and even strung together in a little sequence, that's not what talking is. We're matching the depths of our feelings with living language in a way that a linguist enjoys listening to. No emoji could improve on that. So I think in terms of actual speech, we'll be fine. Do you think we'll ever be like visiting museums that sort of showcase the old languages that used to exist? We are going to be doing that because the languages, you're not supposed to say this, and I hope I'm wrong, but languages, Navajo's okay, but most of those languages cannot be passed on to children forever. And so, yes, they're going to, they're going to be gone. And hopefully linguists will be capturing them as much as we can, and we have the technology to capture them actually spoken. And so, Yes, I can guarantee you there will be language museums where you can hear samples and you can see films of people speaking languages that are gone. And that won't be the same as the language being alive. There's so many nuances. Diorama language is not the same thing as language living. And maybe the in those dioramas of language, the explanation panels will be written in emoji. <laughs> I would enjoy that museum. I hope I'm alive to see it. Thanks so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So that's the rundown on real languages. But what about imaginary languages? Like gibberish? No, no. Like the languages created for TV shows and movies. And luckily, we had our fellow PopSci editor Matt Giles speak with a preeminent Hollywood language maker-upper. Is that his actual title? No, definitely not. He's much more legit than that. My name is David J. Peterson, and I'm a language creator who's worked on productions such as Game of Thrones, Defiance, Dominion, and The 100. And to make up fake languages, he draws on real ones and observes how they change over time. I love looking at uh, uh, modern Pidgin and Creole languages because it's really easy to see their evolution. You know, you can still see the words that they came from, and so you can figure out how it is that the speakers of these languages took the words, be, them from, be it from English or, or, or French or whatever, and produced new words from them and produced new grammar from them. That's really exciting. Uh, all the while, well, we still see, of course, and we'll always see um, lexical play and variation and innovation. Um, you know, jump on Tumblr and there's some new bit of language you'll see every single month. So, there you have it. The future of language lies on Tumblr. Be excited. And that's it for this episode of Futuropolis. If you want more, you can find us at popsci.com or on Twitter at popsci. 
Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We'd like to thank Henry Malofsky, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply, as well as Nicole Liu for her much-appreciated transcription help in the past two episodes. And a big thanks to Sophie Bushwick, who definitely always sounds like she's the voice of the archives. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In the future. Or in other words... When I hit you up another time, I'll come half time. <laughs>